O ye cats and toads, rejoice! Ye slimy things, come hither. For sitting now, I invite you to the witch's sabbath. there welcome to episode 69 of right where you're sitting now the podcast for the site sittingnow.co.uk which we're having some technical issues with at the moment but i'm sorted out um you can also find us on social media at sitting now everywhere so sitting now one word um joining me in the co-host chair as always is mr mark satir how are you doing sir excellent perfect well there you go and he's he's becoming more and more concise with his responses to that uh, <laughs> to that greeting each episode um yes yeah, so who are we what are we talking about this week mr mr satir grotesque hags loom from the shadows cavorting imps writhe round the uh, cauldron of uh, bubbling wickedness as uh, sitting now invites you to the witch's sabbath Indeed, we're interviewing author Keldon, one, no second name, just Keldon, um, who has written an absolutely excellent book uh, published by Llewellyn uh, on the Witch's Sabbath. And um, I'm really looking forward to, uh, to uh, really, this is our first show on witchcraft, which is kind of you know, exciting in itself. We've never really, you know, we're, we're uh, we often get stuck in the cul-de-sac of ceremonial magic, really. And uh, it's quite nice to kind of branch out and look at... Um, you know some other avenues and uh yeah I'm, I'm really genuinely looking forward to this uh this uh this discussion yeah i mean it's uh it, it this it, this book sort of really sort of uh takes a, a very different take on what uh, you know a surprising take refreshing take uh uh on the whole witchcraft concept or witchcraft cult and uh you know opens up new areas which are, i don't think have been explored in exactly the same way in, in the same focus before and um and uh, it sort of offers you know practical nitty-gritty practicalities of it and as well as very thorough scholarship so there's a, an excellent balance there which you don't necessarily get books of that of that type it's not necessarily you don't always get that so yeah it's really fascinating how he kind of weaves in the kind of history how the concept of the sabbath kind of um came to be and actually you find that the roots of the as we'll hopefully discuss in this interview the roots of the of the myth or of the of the folklore that it's not simple it's not it doesn't come from a simple place but it comes from a very fascinating place and that's that's the uh thing i'm most looking forward to talking to keldon about so let's go into that interview right now Hello, Keldon. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I was wondering, would you give us a brief biography of yourself, please? Sure. So my name is Keldon. Um, I am a traditional witch. I've been practicing for over a decade now. Um, I'm the author of The Crooked Path, an introduction to traditional witchcraft. And my newest book, The Witch's Sabbath, 
a exploration of history, folklore, and modern practice. Excellent. So, do you, before you were into traditional witchcraft, did you sort of start along a more traditional Wiccan path originally, or? Yeah, I would say that my path has sort of been this um, kind of back and forth. I mean, I started at a very young age being interested in witchcraft um, and sort of intuitively practicing and connecting with the spirits of the land. And as I as I grew up a little bit more, as I kind of got into um, my early teens, um, I discovered Wicca and, and really spent a lot of time in sort of a um, solitary Wiccan practice. And as, you know, as time progressed and I moved into college, I discovered um, what we would what we would call traditional witchcraft, and it was sort of this um, coming full circle back to back to a lot of the things I was actually doing as you know as a young child, um, just kind of um, intuitively. So there's still I mean I would still say that there are you know things in my practice that are inspired by or influenced a little bit by Wicca. I think that's kind of hard to um, to avoid, although I don't want that to sound disparaging in any way because I have a deep, a deep respect for Wicca. Um, but I would say that I've largely kind of moved out of that. Mm, interesting. So, um... What do you do? You know what what kind of branch of Wicca? Because there seems to be different branches of Wicca, like uh, Gardnerian and Alexandrian, etc. Which which were you kind of uh, involved with? So this would have been more of a um, kind of what we would maybe refer to as like um, a neo Wicca in the sense that you know from these from these kind of original branches of Wicca. So, you know, we start with Gardnerian and then we have Alexandrian um, and it starts as a very initiatory based tradition that kind of moving into the 1960s onwards, um, it becomes more available to, to individuals. So you didn't necessarily need to be initiated into a coven um, to, to be Wiccan um, although, of course, there's a lot of debates about that even today. Um, and so really what I would what I was practicing was a non-initiatory form of Wicca. Okay, that's interesting. So kind of, um, could you talk a bit about the kind of differences between uh, Wicca and what you call traditional witchcraft? That was kind of sure. So really... Wicca and traditional witchcraft are sort of two sides of the same coin. I mean, they're both forms of witchcraft. I think where they differ is, is really the direction that they sort of move in. They're pulling from very similar um, source materials. So things um, like folklore, um, different types of folk magic, sometimes pieces of ceremonial magic, um, but really sort of the where they separate is that Wicca tends to lean more into ceremonial magic, whereas traditional witchcraft tends to lean more into folk magic and folk practices. Um, of course, the line that sort of separates them can be really blurred at times, and there are a lot of people that move between both paths. Um, 
So there is there is overlap. Um, but I would say, by and large, what really makes um, traditional witchcraft different is the emphasis it places on on history and folklore and really rooting into um, into myth and legend um, and a lot of the the sort of pieces that come out of trial transcripts from the witch trials and things like that. Yeah, and that's that's something you really go into in in your new book as well. I was really pleased to see that you kind of really dive deep into the into the kind of uh, the history and the folklore, don't you, of um, of the Sabbath, which is really interesting. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, would you consider like so? Would someone like here in the UK we have Gemma Gary? Would that would she be considered traditional witchcraft? Do you think? Or yeah. So Gemma Gary is um, really, I would say, one of the big names in, in traditional witchcraft. Certainly um, her book, Cornish Book of Ways, I think has been a really um, keystone text for a lot of people in terms of discovering traditional witchcraft. Um, I know that Gemma has um, some background in initiatory Wicca as well. So I think she's a good example of someone um, who has kind of um, gone you know, back and forth between those traditions yeah she's, I've, I can't remember the name of the book I got the black toad I think it was the book of hers I got yeah. recently yeah that was that was really good book actually I really enjoyed that um, he's a very wonderful writer yeah and another one that um he's a fellow Llewellyn writer who I've been um reading a little bit of is Brandon Weston he's got, he mm-hmm. also uh, seems to be come under that kind of uh you know that 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 tent of uh, traditional witchcraft which is it's interesting i find uh it feels like it's um it, would you say it's a relatively new thing even though it's an old practice would you say that the kind of the the, the naming of it and the kind of the more you know the movement itself the, the more recent movement is fairly new or i would say that it's i would say that i mean it's approximately about as old as wicca um now I think many people would quickly point to um, longer standings, longer standing traditions of folk magic. Although I'm always um, very quick to point out, you know, the differences between folk magic and witchcraft. They're not, they're not inherently the same. Um, but really, um, where we start to see traditional witchcraft kind of popping up is is around the same time that that Wicca pops up. Um, kind of going into, and it's really sort of after um, after Gerald Gardner passed away in the 1960s, um, that I think a lot of people started kind of coming out and saying like, hey, um, you know, there's, you know, there's this guy and he's going very public and saying, you know, we're witches. There have been witches this whole time, and this is what we're doing. And there were a lot of people that were coming out and saying, you know, no, like that's not what we're all doing. And and there's a lot of differences here. Um, and those would be people that, you know, would be would be labeled as traditional witches, including Robert Cochran, who's really kind of stands out as as I think being the the sort of pioneer of traditional witchcraft. Um, so as a sort of movement, although it feels kind of odd to, to think about it as a movement because it is um, so diverse, I think sometimes when we hear the term traditional witchcraft, 
it gives this illusion of being like one monolithic entity, a sort of a singular um, tradition when really it's a collection of so many different um, group traditions and individual traditions. Um, but I would say that it, it largely pops up around the same time as Wicca. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've, I've, I've speculated about this before, but with the uh, Cochrane, Robert Cochrane um, influence uh, for it was, I mean, uh, in the, you know, because obviously he died in the 60s, uh, there's always always speculate, you know, what would have happened. There's like an alternative universe somewhere where he doesn't die. And, right. And uh, I wonder what would have happened there. But there is, I mean, there is actually a crossover with Gardarian, Witchcraft and the Cochrane as well, because uh, Dorian Valiente, she yep. knew Cochrane, met him for the first time, I believe, on Glastonbury tour, and she was initiated by him yep. into his um, version of the things um, uh, in Sussex. So, um, you know, so they do, like you say, obviously, they do um, cross fertilize each other, don't they, quite? Yeah, they certainly do. And I think Doreen, I think, you know, talking about my experiences um, with Wicca and traditional witchcraft and Gemma Gary's um, experiences, I, I right away always think about Doreen because I think she, um, you know, talking about pioneers, I think she really stands out as like the pioneer of somebody who, who bridged that gap, um, you know, and really uh, explored both paths. Yeah. We have a personal connection, well, sort of semi-personal connection uh, with Dorian. Uh, Mark, my co-host here, he used to do his laundry at the same laundrette as Dorian Valiente. Uh, it's my, uh, it's my, that is so cool. <laughs> it, is, it is my feign to claim. I mean, it... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, a... yeah, yeah, I mean, I don't, I can't pretend I, I knew her very, you know, particularly well or anything like that or thoroughly, but... Um... Yes, um, that that is true. And actually, we're we're sat probably five minutes walk, ten minutes walk from where her funeral took place as well, just yeah. up the, wow. just up the road, um, at the same funeral location as Alistair Crowley. <laughs> so yeah, interestingly, in Brighton, and also blue. Uh, I don't. I mean, in the in in England, in the United Kingdom, we have the thing these like blue plaques where if somebody of notable um, lived at an address, they often have a blue plaque. Uh, bringing your attention to that and uh, Dorian Valiente was the first um she wasn't the first pagan to have a blue pack but she was the first person to have a blue pack because she was a pagan because she was a pioneer of that kind of uh, of that of that culture and, and that perspective on things so yeah sure we could definitely do a whole show on her I think at some point but yeah no, it'd be so um that's what made you kind of um want to look at the witch's sabbath in particular and write a book about it yeah this is one of my this is one of my favorite stories to tell um so i talk about i talk about the witch's sabbath in the first book the crooked path and one of the things that came back when it was time um to get feedback from the editor was that you know, you've got this section in here about the witch's Sabbath, and it's full of all this really cool information, but it's really disproportionately longer than the rest of the other sections. Can you can you cut this down? And, you know, the witch's Sabbath is such an integral part of my personal practice that I was kind of aghast at the suggestion of, like, cutting it down and, like, how would I even do that? 
Um, and so my sort of compromise was that, okay, well then I will just, I will just write it as its own book. Um, Cause really it warrants, you know, the space for sure, because there's so much um, to discuss on the topic. Um, so I really, um, you know, it was really sort of born out of, out of the first book. Um, there were a lot of pieces too about um, just the way that I think the Sabbath is, well, it's certainly not, um, not talked about. I think um, it's not talked about nearly enough. Um, you know, we were most often presented with the idea of the Sabbaths in, term, in terms of the wheel of year, but I think it's often disconnected from its origin. And I think people are, unfortunately, they're not given that sort of information about, you know, this is where this ultimately stems from, from this folklore. Um, and part of that problem is that the conversations happening about the witch's Sabbath and how that concept developed um, is often really kind of relegated to academia. It's not, um, it's, in, it's in these academic texts that are oftentimes very inaccessible to people. Um, one thing I'm always encouraging people to do, whether they're the witches or pagans or other magical practitioners, is to get out of the New Age section um, in terms of like that, thinking about when you go to like your popular bookseller and there's like this section for, you know, New Age and pagan and witch books and occult books, um, you know, because these, these, aren't, these texts aren't going to be in those sections. Um, you have to really seek them out. And so I wanted to bridge, bridge the gap between academia and modern practitioners and present this information in a way that's accessible to people. Yeah, I was really struck by that. The, um, the level of research is, is actually really impressive in this book. I was, you know, I, I definitely want you to do an expanded edition. <laughs> it yeah. left, it left me definitely a lot more to write. Yeah, it left me wanting more, actually, which is, you know, obviously the sign of a good book, in my opinion. But uh, it was really, I mean, I've, I've, I plowed through that book really quickly, and which is a good sign for me. It's, uh, you know, it means it's it held my interest a lot. The, um, the one of the point early on in the book that really struck me was um, when you were talking about how a lot of the kind of the kind of structure or the kind of imagery of the Sabbath that we've come to know came, you know, it was kind of constructed over the years through various kind of confessions and how sort of traditionally his historians would have kind of rejected um, confession material essentially. Um, but actually the way you look at it and the way you, I, I think you quote a, another academic or an author, you say that actually what that does, these confessions are a kind of reflection of the, mm -hmm. of the inquisitor and, and, and their kind of, um you know panic their moral panics and kind of uh you know the kind of folklore of the time sort of thing which i found really interesting i thought that was a really good way of uh of sort of, of, of putting it yeah um so the author um that you're referring to emma willby um who's done really fantastic work um her most recent book invoking the Akalare, which specifically talks about the witch trials in the Basque region. Um, the sort of premise of that book is looking at the voices of the accused and how when we're looking at confessional material, where we can see the voices of the accused 
versus the voices of the interrogators, how these two um, kind of mingle together. Um, and one of the things that's really important to keep in mind is that, you know, we're not saying that these people were actual witches, that they were actually doing these things. Um, but when they're crafting these narratives, they're pulling from something. Um, and so we see this as like part of it is, yes, the interrogators are often asking leading questions. They're inserting, um, you know, pieces of information that then get pulled into the story. Um, but there are times where the accused is also, um, they're pulling in things. So maybe it's stories that they've heard about, about witches or about magic or spirits. Um, it can be that sometimes they're pulling in sort of mundane um, aspects of their life or experiences that then they're sort of adding this veneer of um, diabolic magic to, um, you know, so like an example would be, um, you know, somebody engaging in, in sort of a folk practice around like maybe blessing the land, right? And, and of course, maybe, you know, when they're doing this, they're, what they're really using is, is kind of Christian-based folk magic. Um, but then through the lens of this interrogation, now it's turned into this um, witchcraft ritual where they're cursing the land or they're stealing someone's crops. Um, so it gets kind of spun and turned. Um, and what we find then in these, in these transcripts are really preservations of pre-existing folklore, as well as new folklore that's being generated through this process. And that's, that's valuable information. And one of the, the biggest things to keep in mind is that this is really where witchcraft is coming from. There's so much, whether we realize it or not as modern practitioners, of things that we do that have their roots in these trial transcripts, which I think is a very uncomfortable thing for a lot of people to grapple with, um, because that means that you know, we sort of have to then come to terms with everything else in the transcripts. We also have to sort of come to terms with our own history um, and what is, um, you know, maybe um, things that we once held to be true. So I think about a lot of people who um, still are kind of existing within that, that idea of like the burning times, that sort of narrative of like, you know, witchcraft really comes from the Celtic people and, you know, it went underground and, you know, all of that. Um, so I think it's it's a lot to take in for a lot of people. Yeah, it's interesting. So one thing, I mean, let's, let's, let's get into it. Uh, I think what the first thing that really struck me is I didn't have, it never really occurred to me, actually. It was why was the term Sabbath used at all? Because this is obviously a word that we don't normally, you know, that would be associated with a, a very different religion let's put it that way mm -hmm. yeah and and really i mean when we look at the history of you know of the witch's sabbath is that really wasn't the term that was initially used it didn't the term sabbath really didn't become popularly used until the 16th century prior to that they used a lot of um pretty generic terms um you know like assembly um sometimes you get um I guess sort of more whimsical ones in Italy, they often use the term game to describe the Sabbath. 
And then, of course, you get the very loaded term synagogue. That was a big one that was used. And, of course, that's very reflective of anti-Semitic attitudes of the early church. Um, and so Sabbath doesn't come until, doesn't come until later. And there's, there's a few theories on why the term Sabbath is used. Um, and I'm inclined to believe that probably the most likely one is just that in a lot of ways, the witch's Sabbath was seen as an inverse of Christianity. Um, and so it would make sense to sort of use the term that they would use for their gatherings to, to apply to witches, right? Um, just in the same way that, um, you know, they would maybe use the term black mass. It's sort of this reverse imagery. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, and there's a there's some kind of Saturn link as well, isn't there, with Sabbath uh, yeah, that you talk no, about in the book? Yeah, so um, one of the... Uh, the sort of ideas put forward of like why why this term is used um, is the relation between the Hebrew word um, and and also the Hebrew word for Saturn and sort of this the similarities between those two. Um, also, the fact that Saturn um, Saturn is often a planet that's been associated a long time with with darker forces, with malefic forces. And so that kind of gets pulled into that theory as well, as well as the fact, um, you know, that really, so the idea of like Saturday, Saturday is associated with Saturn. Saturday is traditionally this day, is the day of the Sabbath, or the Sabbath, excuse me. Um, and, and it was seen that in some places that on this night, on the night, on Saturday night, um, God actually gave permission to two evil spirits to sort of um, really be very mischievous, I guess, to put it lightly. Um, again, you know, the veracity of that theory um, is kind of up in the air. Again, I'm more inclined to look at it more as like a term being used purposefully to serve as an inverse. Um, but it certainly is interesting. Yeah. Uh, it's around this point in the book as well that you start to look at kind of like i guess the history of um witches as well which is kind of interesting so and i think it starts with the uh, roman pagans accusing christians of all, of all people i was saying that was really fascinating could you talk to that a little bit because that was uh yeah. yeah i think this is this is um the part of the book that i think a lot of people um were kind of shocked by um because we're, we're sort of, again, we're sort of used to this narrative of the pagans being persecuted by Christians. And so to sort of have this opposite um, moment in history where really, as Christianity is, is starting, um, that, that the early Roman, the Greek and Roman pagans are really suspicious. Um, you know, and they had already, um, you know, well, they certainly were not exactly friendly um, towards the Jews, they were more tolerant. They, they looked at the Jewish religion as being um, more sound or more legitimate versus with Christianity, they were like, what, what is this? Um, and these rumors started to circulate about Christians that they, they were gathering together and they were engaging in these, 
is really heinous acts, um, including infanticide and cannibalism and orgies. Um, and we see, we see these accusations coming out in different texts during the time. And what's, what's fascinating um, is that then when Christianity becomes the dominant religion, they then take those same accusations and they start lodging them against people that they perceive as being enemies. And really what I think it is about these, these specific accusations is that they really represent kind of the opposite of civility, of human nature, of the laws of nature. Um, and they work to really dehumanize people. They turn people into monsters. And we know that when you dehumanize people, it becomes easier then to hurt those people, to, to you know, treat them very poorly. Um, and, and what's also really fascinating is we see these accusations continue to be lodged against people all the way into the modern times. I mean, these are, these are things that come up in a lot of the, today's conspiracy theories about different groups of people. Um, so really, um, really fascinating piece of history. Yeah, I mean, something we, we, we've touched on before is like, you know, we had the you had the sort of moral panics of the 80s, the uh, satanic yeah. panic. And uh, and now, as you, as, you, as you point out, Mr. Kendall, uh, there, there you've, got the, you've got the narrative of the uh, baby-eating Democrats and... Uh, yep. Uh, yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. So it's 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 not a new thing, <laughs> unfortunately. No. Um, but yeah. Um, so I'm trying to remember how you pronounce this. Is it Wald? So the, the let's, let's go the through. Some, yeah, the Waldensians and the, the, there's the, the Waldensians, the lepers, and the Jews all all got it in the neck as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so yeah. we'll touch on that as well. So so kind of moving forward in time, the kind of next big group. Um, that that sort of falls into this chain of events um, are people with leprosy um, as well as continued persecution of the Jewish people um, and this really this really is happening in France um, in the 1300s and and during this time leprosy was a was a big concern people were getting very sick and it was very contagious um, and these conspiracy theories started emerging that the people with leprosy were actually plotting against Christianity. Um, and, and this pops up in different ways in different regions of France. So in some places, um, it was really that, that the lepers were doing this. And, and what they were being accused of doing is that they were poisoning the water supply in order to give other people leprosy. They wanted to infect all of the Christians. Um, and so in some places, it was said, you know, that this is the work of people with leprosy. In other places, it was that the Jewish people had hired people with leprosy to do this. And then in some places, it was even further that um, Muslims had hired Jewish people to hire the lepers. Um, so there were quite a, quite a few different people involved. And as part of these conspiracy theories and in some of the um, people who were persecuted who, who made these confessions, it was coming out that um, there were these nocturnal meetings happening where, where the plotting was happening. And as part of that, um, they engaged in those three familiar acts, infanticide, cannibalism, and orgies, um, oftentimes incestuous. 
but now, now that Christianity is taking hold, they're adding more to it, specifically acts of apostasy. So renouncing Christianity, either through these sort of very verbal um, statements or through um, different acts like trampling the cross or desecrating the host. Um, and then moving out of that, um, then we start getting into the persecution of groups that were deemed heretical. Um, and really it's the prosecution or persecution of the Waldensians um, that stands out the most because they were by and large the heretical group that became most associated with witchcraft. Um, it's during this time that this sort of new idea um, emerges among kind of the learned people, if you will, about diabolical witchcraft. And this is the, this is the meeting place of sorcery and heresy. Um, they combine together and they form this, this idea of witchcraft. Um, and now, now in addition to these nocturnal meetings where there's, you know, cannibalism and there's apostasy, now there's also now an element of magic, of sorcery. Um, now, you know, the devil is even more involved in this. It becomes more infernal, more demonic. Um, and that, that really sets the stage, at least on the sort of front of the, again, the kind of learned elite at this time. Um, there was still a lot of folkloric development happening at the same time that would then also be filtered in to this narrative and would really kind of buff it out in terms of like concepts of flight, um, a little bit more about magical practice, about spirits that are involved. Um, and so it's all sort of kind of bubbling together in this cauldron, if you will. Yeah, and I think that where we start to really see the kind of um, the bones of the uh, Sabbath start to form is, is uh, I'm going to butcher this guy's name. Uh, is it Bouchard's uh, directum or Bouchard's directum? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Yep, the decretum. Decretum, there um, we go. I told you I'd butcher it. <laughs> it's okay. There's, there's a lot. There are a lot of names and languages in this book, and I would be lying if I said that I could pronounce them all flawlessly. Um, so, yeah. So, um, Bukhara Worms, um, in his text, decretum, um, this, so this is part of the, the sort of folkloric development um, so in the 11th century, he, he puts together this book and really the intention of it is that he's going to kind of dismantle popular superstitions. Um, and, and what it ends up becoming is really this fabulous catalog of, of the beliefs that were circulating in the, at the time among sort of the common people. Um, and in it, he, he references a few times the, this, these ideas of night wandering women, of these sort of spirits and also human women that, that kind of travel in packs through the night. Um, and they often visit houses where they um, will either bestow blessings or sort of um, kind of trash the house, um, depending upon if certain offerings have been left or if the house is clean and people have finished their chores. Um, and this, this taps into um, other sort of beliefs 
Um, it kind of connects back to the canon episcopi, um, which was first recorded in 906, so very early on. And it's this idea that um, there are certain women who believe that they fly through the night um, with, with the goddess Diana, who, of course, um, the Christian writers immediately are like, no, it's not really Diana. It's actually, it's actually Satan. Um, and through time, different variations of the canon episcopi, um, different kind of names are added of different, like, of different women from folklore. So people like Hulda um, from German folklore, um, even sometimes biblical um, people like uh, Herodias um, are added. But there's this idea of women who, who wander through the night, um, and a lot of times they're very otherworldly. And sometimes they have this leader. So, for example, um, in in Italy, this folklore comes out about this mysterious woman, Madame Oriente, um, and these these women gather with this with this woman as their leader, and she they feast, and she shows them how to perform magic, um, and it's all quite fantastical. So this then really feeds into the Sabbath narrative as well. Yeah, as soon as you, um, you you mentioned Diana, I was immediately sort of made the association between the um, the witch's gospel, Adriana, the witch's gospel, and the, the Striga, uh -huh. the Italian Italian sort of um, take on the witchcraft ideas and culture. There's another one thing that's kind of there's a thing called you you, t you touch upon called the Wild Hunt that I found quite interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, I was wondering, could you uh, perhaps talk a little bit about that? And also, the there's an interesting intersection between the Sabbath and fairies, which I found found quite interesting as well. Yeah, so the Wild Hunt, um, this is a concept that's often brought up in discussions about the Witch's Sabbath, although I, I'm hesitant um, to say how much it actually influences the narrative, I don't really see it being as influential as the concept of the women um, from the outside or the night wandering women. But essentially, the Wild Hunt is this um, piece of folklore that about um, really sort of a spiritual parade, a parade or a cavalcade of ghosts and spirits, and sometimes even um, the spirits of people who are living were sort of swept up into its folds. And um, it's typically led by uh, typically by a divine sort of figure or a folkloric entity. Um, part of the issue with how much this actually inspired the, the Witch's Sabbath narrative is that the Wild Hunt, as that sort of codified um, image that I just explained, doesn't really come until the 1800s through the work of Jacob Grimm. Um, so Grimm, in his book Deutsch Mythology, um, he really puts together, he combines all of these different pieces of lore into this kind of composite image of the wild hunt. Um, and he certainly pulls from older um, older sources, um, kind of the, the sort of oldest maybe iteration of what would become the wild hunt comes from, um, from the 11th century. Um, and, and this is, is, is a story regarding a priest who um, encounters a man who, who then tells him the story about how he stumbled upon this procession 
of, of spirits um, who were being punished for their, for their sins. Um, and he refers to this as the Familia Herlicini, um, which of course I always laugh because he gives no explanation of what that means. In the story, he's very, he's very like, I recognized this, this parade as this, and then he gives no explanation of what that is um, or where that idea comes from. But it, it grows from there. Um, and this kind of concept of, um, of the army or retinue of Herla or Herloin or Herlicini or Heliquin, it, it's written different ways. It becomes a literary trope um, across England and it really, I think, takes hold in Germany. Um, and eventually we start to see a leader being added to this. Um, so it's definitely a very interesting um, concept in itself. Um, I just don't know really how much it actually influenced the the concept of the witches' Sabbath. Yeah, it's, the Harlequin thing's quite interesting, isn't it? With um, the Wild Hunt, I've always isn't there's a is I'm, I'm not sure if I'm crossing fiction with with folklore here, but the Harlequin has played some part in this as well, doesn't he? It's like a um, I don't know what I'm saying here. He, 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 he's like a almost like a devil character or like mm -hmm. a, a hunter almost. And that, mm -hmm. th that that struck me when I was reading about the wild hunt. That mm -hmm. I thought perhaps, you know, maybe there's another link, you know, because obviously the devil was very much involved with with the Sabbath. But um, yeah, right. yeah, possibly. Mm -hmm. But and, yeah. Uh, and also with the, the, the wild hunt and there's a crossover over there with the fairy wrath and the, the parade yeah. of the fairies and, you know, in the Tam Lin sort of narrative. Mm -hmm. you know, the, and there's as many other examples from, traditional folklore of uh you know right. out on a certain night in a certain place the 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 fae will you know uh will parade you know the uh on the horses and uh, you'll be able to see them in the moonlight mm -hmm. or what have you and so there's a similar uh, you know the aristocracy right. of um elf fame will uh put an appearance and you'll be able to see them in the moonlight or what have you and um and that's very that's a, that's a very similar narrative to the wild hunt narrative isn't it Right, and that kind of leads us into the right, the sort of overlap between um, what we could what we could define as being a fairy Sabbath and a witch's Sabbath. Um, the the folklore regarding the fair folk and the folklore regarding witches often goes very hand in hand. Um, they're often very similar to each other, and there's this overlap that happens. Um, and one of the places that that happens is. Um, is lore regarding gatherings. And what we see is that gatherings of fairies often look very similar to gatherings of witches. Um, and so we see these elements of feasting and dancing, of music and sex, and sometimes, right, the, the enactment of magic. Um, and, and this is all led by a leader. And so classically, right, in the witches' Sabbath, the leader would be the devil, in the, in the fairy Sabbath, it would be the queen of Elfame, the, the fairy queen. Um, and sometimes what we find is we find, um, whether it's in kind of later folklore stories or even in certain trial confessions, um, we see accounts of, of accused witches going to the fairy world, going into um, 
going into these fairy sabbaths. So I think right away of people like Bessie Dunlop, Isabel Gowdy, um, Andrew Mann, Alison Pearson. Um, these are all people who who talked about meeting the fairies and, and the fairy queen and, and going to these events. Um, yeah. So we see this crossover happening. Yeah, um, yeah. As soon as you were saying that, I was, I was, you, you took the words out. Like Gowdy, Isabel Gowdy's account. She and she enters the uh, a mound and enters mm -hmm. the fairy. I think there's a there's a fairy bull, whatever that might be. I'm, yeah. Mm -hmm. Perhaps she knows. I mean, I, the thing is, the people at the time would probably would get the reference, and it sort of lost on us a bit. But uh, uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, the, and that's one of the reasons why uh, her account is was. Such a fascinating thing to academics. Well, we, see, we see a lot of crossover too in her confession um, and in others as well regarding the use of, of elf arrows or elf darts. And so this idea, I mean, when she talks about going, um, kind of going to the fairy world, she sees them creating these these arrows or these darts, which then of course are used to, to um, you know, hurt, hurt people. If you get hit by an elf dart, it's really not a good thing. Um, but then later she talks about about the devil utilizing them as well, and so a lot of times there's this um, mixture of like between like the king of the fairy and the devil. They're often used interchangeably and synonymously, and sometimes at the Sabbath um, there's reports of this sort of otherworldly woman who um, at times seems very much like a kind of fairy figure, especially when we look at her description, um, they use a lot of colors. So like she might be wearing green or she might be wearing white. Um, and these are colors that are traditionally associated with the fair folk. Um, so again, more of that, that crossover. So it's, um, what's interesting is that uh, the, the kind of imagery and um, lore surrounding the Sabbath starts to kind of weave together and you mentioned in the book one of the big influences for this was something called the council of basil yes yeah mm -hmm. and there's uh, i think there were several texts weren't there um from yep. the, yeah i was wondering if you could go into that because that's quite interesting yes so the um really it's hard to pinpoint exactly at, at you know at what moment in history the witch's sabbath was sort of um born into being we don't really have we don't really have that um we sort of have these different strands as we've talked about and they sort of weave together at you know over time but really the one place where we get the closest to saying like this you know this is where the witch's sabbath was was crafted um is this council that happens um and this is um this is happening in in the 1400s um, this this council is put together. It's going to happen in Switzerland, um, and and really the, what this council was put together for was to discuss um, the the weakening of the papacy, the Great Schism, which I always love talking about because it seems like it's so um, kind of humorous. But essentially, there were two there were two rival popes. Um, so one one person was I you know I'm the pope, and another person's coming forward and saying no I'm the pope, and actually. At one point, a third person comes forward and says, no, actually, I'm the Pope. And so this was not good news. And they were like, we need to figure this out. Um, and they were also gathering to um, discuss um, one, of the, one of the heretical sects that were um, current at the time. And so there's nothing that says that witchcraft was 
officially discussed as part of this council or that it was formally talked about. But what's interesting is that shortly after this, many of the people who were in attendance went on to pen really influential texts that discuss witchcraft and specifically this imagery of witches gathering together and performing, um, performing these acts. Um, so for example, um, one would be the Formicarius by Johannes Nieder. Um, and, you know, in it, he's talking about the ways that, that witches are sort of brought into this, into this group, the kind of initiation rituals that they go through. Um, we also have um, Martin Lefranc's um, Le Champion de Dame. Um, and this one is really cool because it's essentially, it's kind of a long poem. Um, and there's, there's this section that talks about um, women flying to, to the Sabbath. Um, Lefranc specifically uses the term synagogue. So we see that popping up. Um, but he talks about witches flying on brooms. And it's actually in the margins of this text that there's the first known pictorial representation of a woman flying on a broomstick. So that's kind of a cool, cool factoid. Um, and then these texts that are written then go on to influence further writers. And so that lore is really starting to, to generate um, and then, of course, from there, it starts to go into the witch trials and these sort of ideas about the witch's Sabbath um, get mixed in with confessions. It's not long after this. Uh, um, could you discuss, because uh, this is quite a big topic, I suppose, but um, and one we've never really discussed on the show, which is the witch cult hypothesis. Because um, mm -hmm. this is this is pretty huge, isn't it, in terms of <laughs> the sort of development yes. of uh, the the idea of the Sabbath, and it was, but it also the development of um, kind of the identity of the witch, really, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So as we, you know, so now we're we're kind of making a big leap in history, but um, we get to the age of enlightenment, and what happens here is that the belief in the reality of witchcraft. Um, greatly decreases. Um, we get people writing about, you know, this This really isn't a real thing. The powers of witchcraft aren't real. Um, you know, the witch trials were a disaster. Um, and, you know, these people were innocent. Um, we see the laws starting to change. So witchcraft um, stops. It's, it's no longer a capital offense. You're not going to be put to death. Um, and instead, what the laws say is that, you know, anyone who's who's saying that they're a witch or have magical powers, they're really just con artists. And so you're going to be, you know, you could face jail time. Um, you're likely going to be fined, um, but your powers aren't real. But during this time, something else happened. So, like, well, there are some people that are like, no, like, witchcraft isn't real. Um, all of these accused people and the people who are put to death, like they were all innocent. There are people who start to put forward ideas that actually the accused were members of, of sort of an underground pagan religion or remnants or, um, you know, uh, sort of bastardized versions of a pagan religion. And this, um, 
you know, oftentimes today when we talk about the witch cult hypothesis, a lot of people immediately attribute it to Margaret Murray, um, when in fact she did, she, it wasn't novel to her. Um, and in fact, about there's about two centuries worth of other people talking about similar concepts before she wrote The Witch Cult in Western Europe um, in 1921. So, for example, one of the really one of the first people who talks about this is Girolamo Tartarotti um, in 1749. Um, and he writes this book, and in this book, he basically puts out that. Um, you know, the, the witches, the people that were accused are actually sort of remnants of this ancient religion where they followed Diana. And, you know, this is really what that was about. And this was, this was super scandalous at the time because he was basically saying that these people who, you know, that he's saying are witches, that they're following a deity that's not the devil. And so the church was very livid and they actually forced him to write a retraction, um, you know, but moving forward, we we get other people. Um, one of my favorites to talk about is actually Matilda Jocelyn Gage, um, the American suffragist who wrote a book, Women, Church, and State, and this would be in the, the 1800s. Um, and in it, she specifically talks about this idea that, um, you know, there's sort of this matriarchal religion of the past. Um, and she specifically says that, you know, this witch's Sabbath, it was really about, it was this protest of the common people coming together um, in, in opposition of the kind of overculture, um, which I think is really sort of ahead of its time in terms of, I think, where we're at today and, and things like that. Um, but we do, we get to Margaret Murray, um, and she definitely writes one of the most illustrative, like, well-put-together ideas about this supposed um, cult of witches. And it's it's pretty instantaneously um, discredited and debunked. Um, you know, her, her overall hypothesis is that, you know, there's this widespread European religion of witches. And of course, you know, that just, that was just not true. Um, and she, she uses a lot of the trial transcripts to, as, as evidence um, for this hypothesis. Um, she talks about, and she talks about the Sabbath. Um, she actually breaks it up into two parts. There's the Sabbath and the Esbit. Um, and, and these are sort of two variations. What's interesting though, is that, you know, all of these academics and scholars are you know, are discrediting her. Um, but there's one person who really takes it to heart. I mean, there were a lot of people who really took her writing to heart, um, but that was Gerald Gardner. And this is where um, we start to see the eventual emergence of the Wheel of Year, that these, um, these witches' Sabbaths are kind of turned into more of this seasonal set of holidays. Yeah, let's talk about that a bit, because... It was interesting that Gardner sort of decided to sort of he, and obviously this came up with Spare a bit later. But um, he, he, why do you think he a chose a more French pronunciation, which is <laughs> I don't know why he did that, uh, and b like why do you feel that he kind of um, broke up this kind of idea of this this Sabbath mm -hmm. into into these um, into this kind of wheel of the year? Mm -hmm. Well, first I think he. 
I think he maybe preferred um, the French spelling, which would be Sabbat, because um, then when you talk about Sabbat and Esbit, like it just flows better. Like even while writing the book and talking about the specific topic, it just felt wrong to write Sabbat and Esbit next to each other. Um, I don't know what that says about me, but I was just like, this doesn't pair well. Um, I think, you know, maybe he was looking at it as being more um, kind of unified. I mean, of course, that would make sense because Esbit comes from a French word. Um, so they do, they would um, sound better together that way. Um, I think he really kind of broke it down. And part of that is because of Murray. Um, when she talks about the dates of, of the Sabbath, she really fixates on, on this one instance. Um, and so in the, in the lore of the Witch's Sabbath, you come across um, many different sort of high or like holy days that will come up. Um, and in Scotland, you see a lot of these sort of like Christian um, festivals, but there's one case where these four specific dates are mentioned together. Um, we have, um, Rude Day, Lamas, Hallowmas. Um, I'm blanking on the fourth one. I always do this. Um, but basically what we would recognize today as being like the four great Sabbaths of the Wheel of Year. Um, and, and this comes from the one place where these are all mentioned together um, is in the confession of Isabel Smith. Um, in 1661, which always gets a little confusing because you immediately want to think Isabel Gowdy. And Isabel Gowdy actually mentions in her confession that her coven met at the four quarters of the year. And so we see maybe an echo of that. But Margaret Murray takes this one confession and really runs with it, kind of suggesting that this is a more universal thing. Um, and so Gardner then takes that and further adds to it, um, really and also making the connection um, with the Celtic the Celtic fire festivals and bringing that element into it. Um, you know, and then, and then he takes it further um, over time, the, the solstices and the equinoxes are added to that. And it just grows, it grows from there and becomes this, this kind of widely accepted thing. And I think again, today, when we think about it, we often, a lot of people go immediately to that place of like, oh, like the wheel of year, it comes, you know, it comes out of, out of Celtic, um, you know, Celtic culture. Um, and that's not, that's not really the whole truth. In fact, I think it's, um, I think it's more true to point out its roots in the witch trial transcripts. And, and, and Gardner and um, Murray did actually know each other as well. They were a member of some folklore or anthropological society. So they, 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 they met and exchanged ideas and and so on so they're in the real world so that's that's quite interesting it's also interesting to hear that margaret murray is not the first person to engender the concept of the witchcraft hypotheses witchcraft cult hypotheses i should say i think i remember i think she claimed that she met somebody in glastonbury or somebody who gave her the idea but what what that mounted to i don't know but and she sort of ran mm -hmm. with that yeah, it's interesting. I was really pleased to see in the book that after Gardner, you um, stepped into ground more familiar to me, which was uh, you mentioned Austin Osmond Spare, Steffi and Kenneth Grant and Chumley. Um, I mean, it does. It seems like an episode. We, every, with every episode, <laughs> Kenneth Grant seems to turn up in our uh, in our episodes in some form or another. Um, but yeah, Spare and Grant and uh, Gardner rather um, did not, and Dorian Valiente uh, did not 
necessarily see eye to eye on the concept of the same. No, they certainly <laughs> not. Um, I'll never. It's one of my um, sort of uh, maybe favorite favorite quotes. Not necessarily that I endorse the message, but um, when uh, when Spare called Doreen a myopic nymph, um, I think that just that phrase is quite funny. Yeah, it's, um, it's nicely worded, at least, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. um, but yeah, so what yeah. is, so, I mean, because often, I don't think necessarily people would see Spare's role in this story, but you actually make a really good case for it, I think, in the book. So it'd be really interesting to hear. And also, also Kenneth Grant as well. I mean, like I say, he turns up, he, just, he keeps appearing in these episodes. So yeah. um, we are planning to do a Kenneth Grant episode soon. But um, yeah, so it's always... Um, uh, it's always good to hear some Grant Grant uh, stuff. So could we um, uh, touch on Spare first? And maybe, yeah. yeah, I think that might be interesting. It's it's sort of almost difficult to talk about Spare and, and Kenneth and Steffi Grant separately because I feel like they just really go together. I mean, they had that, yeah, you definitely. Know, that friendship. Especially, um, especially in the Kenneth Grant's books. You just feel half the time like you're reading like an extended biography of, of Spare. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so Spare, you know, we're coming out of this, uh, at it from this more kind of ceremonial magician, sort of chaos magic realm. Um, but Spare writes about the idea of the Sabbath. Um, so for example, in his text, the Zoetic Grimoire of Zos, um, you know, he talks about the Sabbath as being um, very much this sort of way of manifesting your will, often through sort of a sexual component. Um, and his his work on the Sabbath is is actually really influenced by by Kenneth and Steffi. They were kind of um, really kind of prompting him to write more about this. And um, I think, you know, a classic story um, that Spare tells is about this experience he has um, being on this bus at night and there's all of these kind of, um, there's these women and they're sort of otherworldly. Um, and he, he talks about later, he realized that, that they were witches going to their, going to their Sabbath and that he was actually sort of in this liminal otherworlds kind of place, which I think is a really sort of quaint modern interpretation of, you know, witches traveling to the Sabbath by bus. Um, and we get we get kind of more um, expansion on Spare's ideas in, in Kenneth's later writing. Um, he talks more about the symbolism of the Sabbath as being um, really a reference, more so to an otherworldly place than a the physical place, and how um, we can we can travel there um, and engage in the symbolism. And this is where we can attain gnosis and, and create change and transformation. They talk about atavastic resurgence, this idea of kind of trails or currents that travel backwards all the way to this primordial source. And this is really kind of what the Sabbath is. We follow this reverse imagery. So when we think about some of the, the folklore of the Sabbath, so like these, these ring dances that are going um, counterclockwise or even like concepts of the black mass all of this imagery is is inversed 
And so you're following this trail backwards all the way to this, this spiritual center. Um, and, and that's really kind of in their, in their minds what the Sabbath is about, which I think is very true to how we, we do view the Sabbath in, in traditional witchcraft today. Um, and then both Bear and Grant would influence Andrew Chumbly. Yeah, as I was say, it almost feels like when you discuss like the traditional witchcraft um, take on the Sabbath, it, it it almost to me resembled kind of astral projection in a way, or some kind of mm-hmm. like um, like you'd see in something like Thelema or you know something um, more ceremonial in nature. Mm-hmm. It, I guess it's it's a sort of similar concept isn't it it's this astral projection or this projection to another place kind of thing um Mm -hmm. um, but yeah the chumley um side of things i mean he's an interesting character anyway because he was so sort of secretive wasn't he anyway and i mean half of his work yeah so uh, how did chumley come into this so chumley comes into it um and again like you're saying very mysterious so we kind of like you know his sort of origins are a little, um, I guess, kind of obscure in some ways. Um, but he starts he starts writing um, very much in line with, with these ideas. And we can see the influence of Spare and Grant. Um, and um, he, he starts to put together this, um, you know, this cultist sabbati, um, this sabbatic craft which you know he would say that you know is not necessarily his creation but something that he has sort of inherited um and and he talks about it as like you know this is really this is really rooted in the imagery of the witch's sabbath um and it's this kind of otherworldly practice it it exists at this intersection he talks about the intersection waking sleeping and dreaming um and that really through these these sort of dream incubation kind of experiences, you you go to the Sabbath and and you again you sort of learn this these lessons and this lore and this gnosis and you can engage um, you know in in transformative acts um, and he forms this tradition around it um, that's still very much in operation today. Um, and he pens quite a number of of texts that um, you know a lot of people really turn to. So thinking about like the Azuasha, um, probably being the most well known. Um, and yeah, from there it just sort of continues. So like you have like those specific traditions where people are continuing this work, um, but then you see the ways too that like those those influences. Um, have also kind of kept the the interest in in the witch's Sabbath as being an otherworldly experience, like really keeping that alive and keeping that within you know modern practice. It helps bring it from the folklore, um, you know, into the hands of practitioners today. Yeah, and and Spears art, uh, you know, he, he depicts the the witch's Sabbath very much in that way, isn't it? In that liminal yep. space, that dream dreamlike nightmare-like liminal space and i'm thinking about grant as well uh, uh that reminds me of sort of lovecraft and there's sort of uh i was just thinking about the um dreams in the witch house which is 
where it's chill, where the the witch in the story dwells in this sort of in between places of a dimension. Mm-hmm. So, so sort of similar similar notions. There. Yeah, it's interesting. It's um, I think the way you discuss you discuss it in the book is uh, you call it the other world and the the three worlds and hidden landscape. I think it is. Yep. Yeah. Could we let's talk about that because I, I found that really fascinating. Yeah. So when we think about the other worlds. Um, the other world is very fluid, um, and I'm always quick to point out the ways in which, um, you know, the other world is always going to appear differently to different people. Um, a lot of times this will also be hinged on cultural context, um, but it also can change for the individual. So you might go one time and see, you know, see this sort of landscape before you, but the next time you go, it could be completely different. Um, but there, what we tend to find when we look um, at different cultural variations or descriptions of the other world, what we often find is this sort of um, three-world model, right? There's sort of a, a lower world, a middle world, and an upper world. And, and this is all centered on an axis mundi or sort of a central pole, Um so I think the, the sort of um, most common um, conception would be Yggdrasil um, from Norse mythology. Um, but, but there are variations in many different cultures. Um, and so you sort of travel this, this world tree or the central pole and you, you go to the different worlds. Um, and, and broadly speaking, the upper world is sort of this realm of of gods. Um, and of course, you know, these, these spirits, they're not limited to, you know, to these worlds by means. Obviously, we know there are a whole ton of um, underworld gods, um, but these are kind of the, maybe some of the home base or we're more inclined to encounter some of these spirits. Um, the middle world is where we live. It's our physical world, but there's also this hidden landscape behind it. Um, and this is really where we're encountering kind of nature spirits and the fair folk. And then, of course, the underworlds, the realm of the ancestors of the dead. Um, and so we can, you know, we can travel to these different worlds and we can do different things. Um, but when it comes to the Sabbath, the Sabbath is really happening in that hidden landscape of the midworld. Um, you know, I'm sure you could find the Sabbath maybe in the upper world or the underworld, um, but by and large, you're going to encounter it in that hidden hidden landscape, the landscape that is that is sort of spiritually um, parallel to to our own physical landscape. Yeah, it's interesting. I've been researching um, a, a guy called Robert Monroe, who's a uh, he's a uh, the guy that famously um coined the term out of body experience uh, mm-hmm. and he was we were watching an interview recently actually with him where he spoke about um he ba- he basically designed this technology that allowed you to using sound um essentially astral project or you know um yeah astral project that's the only way <laughs> that's the best way to describe it really go out mm-hmm. of your body go into these like alternative state alternate states rather and but he talked about this idea of phasing and um he said that once you get very proficient in this idea of phasing that you you go to this other place and that actually he comes from a scientific background but that actually convinced him that you know when our bodies pass away you 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 phase onto this sort of alternative alternate kind of 
place and it really resonated actually I was because I'd just been yeah, that's fresh in my mind when I was reading your book I was like that sounds so familiar to what Munro yeah. was saying it's re- it's really fascinating when you see these kind of things kind of cross over like that it was uh that really struck me but um one of the things that really it's a very famous thing with the Sabbath and with um witchcraft in general is the ointment the fly the ointment mm-hmm. to fly uh, I was wondering, could you discuss the ointment and like also the kind of the history of it as well? Because I was really fascinated. You, you said there's no like official recipe for it or, um, you know, it, actually the first recipe was made up by someone that was kind of anti-witch almost. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, so we find references in trial transcripts to sort of the idea of of flying ointment Um you know, sometimes this is described as an ointment, sometimes it's described as an oil, um, but essentially it's a substance that that the supposed witch would put on their body or on their flying implement, um, and then it would carry them off to, to the Sabbath. Um, but in trial transcripts, in the confessions, that's really where we're not, we don't see a recipe, like um, the accused isn't necessarily giving um, a recipe. It's really in sort of the people who are writing about about these confessions or writing about ideas regarding witchcraft. Um, that they're sort of speculating what you know what would be in in one of these ointments. Um, and what we see over time is like there's this intersection too with um, different sort of like cell like salves and balms that are being used. Um, sometimes like in medical practice um, as like an, a, like kind of anesthesia. Um, and, and it's all kind of coming together. And so we see these sort of herbal ointments um, and they're oftentimes using nightshade plants, these kind of classic poison plants. Um, and over time, there starts to be more kind of diabolical pieces added to it. So like, it's not just herbs now, it's herbs, but also bat's blood or it's rendered in baby's fat. Um, And so that sort of um, kind of changes over time, kind of the the ingredients. And so we do find recipes. I mean, recipes are given by by different writers over time. Um, And so we have kind of a collection of them, Um, but in terms of kind of that early um, trial folklore, we're not really seeing any specific recipes being given yeah it's interesting um so one thing i really loved about um about the book was that it's not just like a history and and a kind of hypothesis but you also give like practical kind of um ritual i guess uh instruction within the book um i was wondering if if you perform these rituals and you're successful what what might you encounter um at a sabbath So one thing, um, you know, really like in, in the book is that, you know, I, I give these, these kind of rituals, these exercises, um, and they're sort of lead up, lead ups to, you know, to other worldly travel and going to the Sabbath. And, the, and it's sort of left open ended in the sense that like, once you get to the Sabbath, it's really going to unfold organically. Um, you know, and it's, it's really not something anymore that I can, I can help you with. Um, it's all on, you know, it's up to you now. Um, but what you're likely to encounter um, is, you know, some sort of scene before you out in, you know, in, in a, 
you know, sort of a natural um, wild place, although there are cases, you know, where you might end up at a Sabbath that's occurring inside of, you know, an old church or something like that. But I think by and large, it's often more sort of these wild spaces. Um, for me, it's often this, this vision of a kind of mountaintop, a forest mountaintop. Um, and typically you're going to find that there's usually some sort of central kind of fire component, um, so like a big bonfire. Um, and there's really going to be a lot of different spirits there. So these will be spirits of other witches. They might be spirits of witches that are living or witches who um, from the past. They might even be spirits of witches from the future. Who knows? Um, there are going to be spirits of you know, of other dead, um, fair folk, familiar spirits. Um, really, it's going to, it's also going to really hinge on the spirits that you work with. Um, and this kind of also leads into some of the more, like, complex theories about, like, the nature of the Sabbath and does everybody, why doesn't everybody experience the same thing? And um, why is it not, you know, that when you go there, you, you're not necessarily seeing the the people you know that are also you know, maybe somewhere like five states over also attending the otherworldly Sabbath. Um, but you'll see feasting, there'll be dancing. Um, sometimes Sabbaths tend to be more kind of business oriented. So it might be more focused on working particular rituals or forms of magic. Sometimes it'll be more celebratory. Um, it's, it's really just, it varies. Um, so it's kind of hard to say broadly. Um, and typically there will also be a leader. Um, and this is one of those things that will depend upon the spirits that you work with. And so I, you know, I say in the book that if you're not somebody who works with the devil, the devil's not likely to, to be at your Sabbath. Um, but certainly um, a spirit who, who you work with, who um, is maybe sort of a higher up, if you will, will step into that role. You, I mean, you brought up the devil, so we, we. I mean, we really should kind of uh, bring him into this at the moment because he's obviously quite a a key figure when it comes to the historical rendering, at least of the um, of the Sabbath. So, and, and what I found really fascinating was, um, depending on what region you're in, the devil's kind of presented in a very different way, isn't he? It's like, yes. yeah, and I found that really. Could you talk to that a little bit? It was. I, I found this really fascinating. So the devil. Um, features in, you know, in, in the witch trials, because really that's, you know, what they're looking at witchcraft as being. It's really about um, empowerment through the devil. Um, and, and the Sabbath is really sort of about paying um, homage to the devil. And, um, you know, he, he sort of acts as this liberator who provides, you know, these, these sort of key pieces of human existence that are often denied at this time. So, you know, good food, sex, dancing, music, um, and, but also this forbidden knowledge that then can be used to sort of better one's life. And um, sometimes I think that's missed because we look at these, um, you know, these pieces of like, they're talking about, um, you know, killing people or destroying crops and, you know, we, we see that as sort of this like, oh, that's so bad. But you can also look at it through the lens of being forms of justice and survival. Um, so the devil really acts as, as this kind of liberator figure. 
Um, and he does. He appears different in different regions, and sometimes this is based on the pre-existing folklore of the region. Sometimes this is based on um, different attitudes regarding different people. So, like, for example, in, it was very common in the um, kind of in the early American colonies for the devil to be talked about in terms of being um, a Native American. So there's a lot of kind of, unfortunately, there's some racist and xenophobic um, components to it as well. Um, but you also see kind of his personality shift. And I think this has a lot to do with just popular connotations of the devil at the time, whereas like in sort of that kind of learned place, right, these sort of upper class people, they're viewing the devil as, you know, being this like kind of highly sophisticated um, agent of evil versus among the lower class, he's more of this kind of um, folk figure. He's often looked at as, as being kind of less threatening, um, which is not to say non-threatening, but, um, um, and, and you know, this is an interesting sort of uh, uh, intersection with like the history of, of Satan and the devil um, and some of the, the, some of the things we see with him, you know, kind of going into the Middle Ages where oftentimes the devil was depicted as, as being kind of rather foolish um, and more of this kind of buffoon um, you know, as well as being sort of a, um, an amalgamation, if you will, of different um, previous kind of pagan deities or land spirits and things like that. Um, so you'll find his personality often shifts based on the perspective of who's talking about him. Um, so whether it's someone from the upper class um, who would typically be a persecutor or someone from the lower class who would typically be the accused. Um, as well as regional differences, because this also pops up in the way that the Sabbath is depicted. You find that the closer you are to the Holy Roman Empire, um, the more that Sabbath narratives tend to be very highly ceremonial um, and more of that sort of black mass inverse versus the further you get away from that. So, you know, in a place like Scotland, the Sabbath is often going to have more of that kind of celebratory kind of folk festival aspect to it, where it's going to feel more a little bit more whimsical, um, not as dark necessarily. Yeah, interesting. So, just closing out here, like <clears throat> in the obviously in your book, you give instructions on how to access a Sabbath. Essentially, what are your um, thoughts on people attempting the Sabbath for the first time? Like, what do you have any kind of uh, words of like words of wisdom i guess uh, to you know uh, any words of caution maybe as well i think my biggest like word of advice would be not to overthink it um i think people often overthink otherworldly travel um they have very like overblown expectations and so one thing that i find um often happens is people people will kind of tell me an experience that they have where they're like you know, I have this experience, but I don't really think it was, you know, otherworldly travel or like, and I'll be like, no, like, actually, that's exactly what that is. Um, I think a lot of times people have already traveled to the other world or maybe even gone to a Sabbath and they just didn't even realize it because they kind of wrote it off as like a daydream or, um, or a nighttime dream. Um, so I'd say just to keep an open mind. Um, to know that experiences vary. Um, and in terms of caution, I think just 
really listen to your intuition and when in doubt consult with your spirits especially if you have a familiar spirit they will be a very awesome ally in otherworldly travel and attending the sabbath um but definitely i mean definitely don't overthink it just you know trust in yourself um, and take it slow it's okay to take it slow and to slowly explore and allow that to unfold for you Excellent. So if people want to get in contact with you or find you or what was, where's the best place for them to look? Um, the best place to find me is on Instagram. My Instagram handle is at Keldon Mercury. Um, that's where people can usually find me. Excellent. And uh, do you have any new projects coming up? Yes, I'm currently working on my third book, um, which will be a self-published um, a sort of a for foray into fiction. So this will be a collection of original folk tales in rhymes. Uh, the title is All Them Witches, and that will be coming out in October Brilliant. of this year. Well, thanks so much for coming on, and uh, thanks to Marcus from Llewellyn for, uh, for arranging this for us. I love Marcus. He's great. <laughs> He's great. Yeah, excellent. But yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, yes, yeah. thank you very much. And, an ex and the book's an excellent uh, balance of the... So nitty gritty practicalities and uh, thorough scholarship. And we are back from the other world. Um, I thought that was a really, really enjoyable interview. What did you think, Mr. Satir? Yeah, very, very thorough, wasn't it? It was a very, very thorough examination of the of the themes. And there's so much more in the book. That's the other thing that's so great about it. It's, um, you know, we covered probably, you know, a small percentile of what's actually on offer in the book. And, you know, um, we touched on some of the juicier parts, but there's there's plenty, there's, there's much more juice in there. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. And like I say, I mean, it sort of breaks new ground but in a sense it's not new is it it's sort of radical in the sense of it's going back to the roots of the thing it's uh, it's returning to the source in a new in a in a revitalizing it yeah definitely it's always yeah i find it's always fascinating when someone really takes a kind of broad look at this kind of you know like an archetype like we were discussing yeah. earlier it, it really it's um it's interesting it's um you know, it's uh, it's it's good to know. It's also good to know the roots of some of these things. You know, it's it's something that we just take for granted. You know, we we hear the the phrase "witch is Sabbath" or we you know we hear about witches, but we don't necessarily think about the kind of um, where it, the roots of it or where it all comes from. And and when you actually pry into that, you really start to you know you start to get a, a, a flavor of different periods and different kind of uh, eras don't you it's and, of... and the roots are you know archetypal I'm, I'm often accused of over you know always referring back to young somehow <laughs> which i i do so unapologetic <laughs> without apology without apology uh, and uh, and uh, you know the, an, an archetype by its nature is sort of ahistorical it sort of has it it has its antecedents it draws on the past but at the same time it, it draws on stuff which is not necessarily history in the straight sense of the word if that makes sense and once again mr grant <laughs> made a return i think we've literally mentioned him in the, every episode of the i life. think i think the phantom of the of, of mr grant actually haunts haunts uh, sitting now he's, <laughs> he's, he's lurking I, I dare I say lurking in the shadows oh yeah definitely as we speak 
Yeah, well, you know, uh, it's a good person to have lurking us. Oh, yeah, yeah, lurk away. Yeah, exactly. And also, first time we've mentioned Chumley in um, in City yes, now, and yes. uh, you know, so all these, it's I love how all these, uh, even though we're talking about a completely different tradition here, still there's this kind of crossover, you know, um, and that's that's always a really fascinating thing yeah. about doing this show, actually, that you find these kind of connections where you didn't necessarily know they existed kind of thing yeah absolutely yeah there's a it's like a sort of family tree isn't it with different branches um sort of spreading out yeah so uh yeah i think we're going to touch back on witchcraft again fairly soon um i'm quite looking forward to it now i mean after i mean if they're all as good as that then <laughs> i'm uh you know i'm um i'm, I'm all in but anyway, yeah, so we'll be back next week with Trevor Gray um, to talk about his new book. Um, so that, that should be a particularly good one. Um, big fan of that book. Uh, so, yeah, we'll be back next week with Trevor Gray. And uh, until then, do, don't forget to kind of come and give us a like on uh, and a subscription on YouTube and come and say hello on social media at sitting now um i mainly i mainly lurk on instagram if you want to kind of get in contact with me we just had a um, a listener get in contact um so but yeah i'm happy happy to answer questions or whatever if you have any uh requests for guests as well do do get in contact um but yeah uh we'll see you next time with trevor gray